Welcome to WWDMD, a podcast that is all about peeling back the curtain on what clinicians really think and feel as they work with others. My guests, clinicians, who are also sometimes clients themselves, risk their vulnerability as they publicly share their emotional reactions to their clients, disclose their challenges in doing the work, and reveal their personal backgrounds. I'm Dr. Myers. I'm a psychotherapist in New York City with 30 years of practice experience specializing in anxiety and depressive disorders, as well as sibling relationships and family systems. I'm also a professor of social work at Malloy University on Long Island. I see this as a journey of self-reflection for not only our guests, but you, because with each episode, I'm hopeful that you will learn something new about yourself. Please note that any discussion of case details have been modified to protect the privacy of our clients. What would Dr. Myers do? Hey, everyone. I am with Brooke Olson. He has his own podcast, which I'm sure he's going to tell you more about at the end of our conversation. It's called the High Conflict Co-Parenting Podcast, which I guested on not too long ago. Uh, But let me tell you a little bit about Brooke. He is a certified parenting educator with the International Network for Children and Families. He is a certified divorce mediator, a divorce coach, and author of The Black Hole of High Conflict, which focuses on perspectives and strategies for navigating a high-conflict divorce. His approach is holistic, which includes an understanding of psychological and physiological reactions to trauma and conflict, And uh, Brooke also teaches classes in the High Conflict Aversion Program, and he trains instructors to teach the program throughout the U.S. and Canada, and he also offers workshops for couples focusing on communication. So great to have you here, Brooke. Thank you for having me, Amy. Yeah, my pleasure. So uh, it was fun guesting on your podcast, and I'm sure we're going to have uh, equally interesting conversation here. I thought that um, we could start by um, having you tell us about this term or this concept, high conflict, right? We're talking about high conflict parents or high conflict divorce. Kind of sounds like it's obvious, but maybe you could get into the, the background of it. Yeah, so um, maybe I got I got into this field about 20 years ago, and it it was directly related to my own experiences um, going through a high-conflict divorce at the time. And um, back then, this this notion of high-conflict wasn't really codified very well. There was a a notion of, you know, we had people coming back in, they didn't get through with their divorces, there was a lot of back and forth, but the term high-conflict really hadn't taken a lot of... um, a lot of focus. And then there were a group of people that really started to look into why was this a thing? And what they really began to discover at the time was this notion that there were a lot of input from people with high conflict personalities, personality disorders, if you will, the narcissistic, the borderline, the histrionic, and and what have you, that perpetuated conflict and and really attachment through conflict. And this is where they got their drama, their systems got fed through it, and they kept coming around and around. So the term high conflict really talks about what I call frequent flyers in the the judicial system. Um, They're never really done 
with the conflict, you can try to put parameters in place to have some consequence, but the, the system really isn't set up to be personal in that and, and take care of it all the time. So these are um, people that are always in the court system and fighting over mostly custody issues. So these are folks that uh, mediation would not work with or had not worked with. Yeah, mediation is a really difficult one here. It isn't that it doesn't work, but it takes a a level of really super high qualified uh, mediators to handle that. And it's not always successful in that arena either, because again, unless you can get to the core of why the people want to continue the fight, which is um, usually some level of cognitive dissonance that they don't really understand, you know, what they're doing or what they're in, it, it's hard to peel the pieces back. But when you mentioned personality disorders, right, that these are folks who um, have patterns of behavior that obviously infiltrate the marital discord and, and it continues for a pretty lengthy time through the divorce process. And I would suspect thereafter, um, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, you know, the, the notion of these, um, access to cluster B personality disorders is this notion that they are stably unstable, that they, this, this is where they're stuck developmentally, uh, there's research out there that says brain development in some certain areas of cognitive function and regulation are substantively um, underdeveloped. So the behavior is not going to change. Mm-hmm. And when there's this um, this relationship that feeds that um, that cycle. Mm-hmm. There's not a lot of reason for them to get out of it. And they've got a cause. They've got, you know, people in the system that are advocates for them, somebody that's going to make judgment for them. And they really circle around and stay stuck in that process. Yeah. So do you, well, first of all, tell me about cluster B for those who don't aren't familiar. So, so in, in the access to cluster B um, in the DSM, these are the, um, narcissistic personality disorder, the borderline personality disorder, the histrionic, the um, paranoid, and the antisocial. And they're um, clustered around, there's a lot of crossover behaviors with them. Oftentimes they're comorbid. Mm -hmm. In nature, we find one or two or three in the same person. And oftentimes in the, um, at least the tendencies of some of the behaviors in the relationship itself okay and and again and just to just to be clear on this for a minute because these labels get really misused to a large extent i like to really demystify them and pull the judgment out of them because um if we don't do that there's blame and we want to get out of the blame we want to get into in in how i work with people into the solutions, how to disengage, how to really work the solutions that are needed to get the kids out of the middle of these things. Okay. So uh, I have so many questions. My first question is, I know you do high conflict co-parenting. So the assumption is that there's kids. Do you do high conflict divorce and working with the 
helping folks navigate divorce with who may be childless? Sometimes, but mostly the work that I do um, is around families that have children, people that, you know, this is really the focal point for me. This is where um, the kids really get caught in a crossfire. Um, parents don't know how to really disengage and and get the kids out of the middle. And my strategies are really based on on that whole concept. So the high conflict co-parenting piece, I use a parallel parenting model, mm-hmm. which is a subset of co-parenting, but it basically really says, um, parent, you stay in your own lane. No matter what the other parents trying to pull you into, you just stay in your own lane. Up your game, be the best parent you know how to do. Don't engage with um, the uh, what I call conflict fishing, where a parent will just keep throwing things out to try to get you to bite into a conversation because once you're in the conversation, it deteriorates. So um, communication becomes minimal. It's based on children's needs. And then to really define what that means gets to be a little bit tricky. So do you work with a couple or do you work with, uh, I'm going to use this language, you, I don't think you do. Do you work with the target or do you tr- t- work with the aggressor distinctively? Um, I, I usually don't work with both parents. There are sometimes in mediation where that comes in. There's sometimes um, on rare occasions where I do parenting coordinating, where I work with both parents. But typically my clients will come to me and they'll say, I'm in this. I don't know what to do. How do I extract myself from this person's behavior? And what I try to do is listen to the behaviors and not to um, the judgments that are there and say, okay, if the behavior is this, then we do this. And to get them to understand again that this isn't complicated. It's actually simple. But changing the behaviors of engagement are difficult because people are in relationship for reasons. They're drawn to relationships for reasons. Oftentimes, in these high-conflict relationships, there's codependency issues. There's lack of boundaries. There's an inability to um, stand up and set good boundaries for themselves and for their children. And because of that, these behaviors, these abusive relationships continue as they often do because there's an inability to um, really see their participation in it. And what I try to do is get the people that I'm working with to see how they participate in the conflict so they can extract themselves from it. Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh. Okay, that's very interesting. So, um, I mean, you're kind of alluding to this now, but I know that you have a diversion program that acknowledges the dance and perhaps part of the dance is this codependency, but I'll ask you. Um, and it occurs, you know, throughout the divorce process. But can you tell me about the focus of, of this diversion program and more about this dance? So in, in the high conflict diversion program, which is my classes that I teach for parents, um, it's kind of broken down into three basic, three or four basic levels. The first is um, just understanding these high-conflict personalities. What is it? Because they're developmental. They're attachment disorders. And they come from attachment trauma in early childhood. 
and are developed through the family of origin. So to understand that that is what that is and what that looks like from attachment theory. So from this notion of if we put a center point in here and we're looking for the ideal um, secure attachment, that that is what we're we're trying to achieve as parents with our children. And then if that wasn't achieved for a child, they develop these maladaptive behaviors to structure their world so they can survive through the eyes of of whatever traumas that they've been in. And that develops these different directions of the disorders and what those continuums look like. So we look at behaviors and we look at why those behaviors develop. And then we move into, um, in, in those same areas, what are the belief systems that you bring to the table that keep you attached in these um, in these uh, conflicts? Mm-hmm. And then, you know, we move into the parallel parenting um, stories about really how to separate, how to disengage. I've got uh, I've got three basic rules that I've always had in this program, and the basic rules are disengage, disengage, disengage. <laughs> Yeah. And they're they're not done in a um, repetitive piece, but rather a a building point of competencies. So we talk about the different levels of competencies that we want to get to and how to how to be in that and achieve that. And in the parallel parenting model, again, one parent just focuses on what it is that their child's needs are and takes one hundred percent responsibility for that, gets out of the notion of fairness out of this should be equal and all of those things and just focuses on the child. And when we can achieve that, the children ultimately get pulled out of the middle, regardless of what the other parent is doing. Okay. So let me just ask you about change and your perspective on that, because I believe that this is a nine week class. Is that correct? Yes, it is. Okay. Nine weeks. And it sounds very uh, educational, very information based. Um, And I think that, Information, of course, you know, is is really, really important. As a psychodynamic psychotherapist, I'm quite aware that information doesn't always lead to change. So I'm curious how right. your clientele kind of moves through the class and feels that they now have the tools. Because a lot of times we know what we need to do. Well, first, we may not know. So we bring that into awareness. Then we think about how we could do things differently. But actually putting that into action is the basis of, I think, long-term therapy. So I'm curious about right, right. what happens in your process, what you've so, observed. People people come to the classes for two reasons. They're court-ordered or they want to make change or sometimes both. And oftentimes the people that come to the class that are court ordered are resistant. It's like, I'm only here because I have to be here. But what they start to discover um, because of the way that I approach this, I keep weaving all of the parts in and out throughout the nine weeks. It's not just, we're going to talk about this. We're going to talk about this. We're going to talk about this. There's a weaving in and out because people come in at different, at different times. So we get the benefit of the people that have been there for a while mm-hmm. that have used the terms and and the tools for a while and mm-hmm. they report back into i did this i did this i did this it worked it worked i struggle here mm-hmm. and that's helpful for the people that are in the group mm-hmm. um 
effectively changing people's behavior. Yes, I get a concept, but if I don't use it, um, nothing changes. So some people make the changes and some people don't. But I find, by and large, that the people that come to the High Conflict Diversion Program are looking to make some change. They're, They're in a fight. And they don't like being in the fight. The fight is costly. It's emotionally costly. It's financial costly. It's socially costly. And once we get into the pain part of that and start to look at their roles and the solutions to the change, there's an impetus for them to move into it. And for many of the people, um, the testimonials that I've gotten back is like, they hear me on their shoulder when they're in the middle of their stuff. It's like this stuff starts to register and they move into, you know, first, you know, this notion of unconscious incompetence. And then they start to move into the conscious incompetence component of, yeah, I know what I don't know and I'm working it. And then they start to find some level of competence in their stuff. And once they hit that competence, they'll, toggle back and forth but they find that this stuff really works and um they use it and i think you know i i don't have empirical data on it but i hear back from people years later that might come back around and something else is hitting and it's like all of this stuff is working on i need a refresh i need another um i need another injection of yeah cognitive process in this so i can re-engage in it but right um i've been doing it for the better part of 20 years and i feel like we've had a really good good run at success in it yeah i i think i'm asking the question based on what i can take from that not only in in like kind of reconstructing you know my work into a more brief oriented intervention and thinking about CBT, right, mm-hmm. and, and changing behavior and right. changing thought patterns. But uh, it's striking to say that there's three rules, right? Disengage, disengage, disengage. And I think mm-hmm. that that's what so many of us are challenged by, whether or not we're in a high-conflict uh, parenting or high-conflict divorce situation, right? This idea that when there is conflict, just disengage, disengage, right? And so putting that into practice is, uh, you know, something that I think, for me anyway, with a um, sample of one, but also a lot of people mm-hmm. that I work with, that it's a life a life uh, journey, right? That it's like, like you're saying, like they're coming back for a refresher because you lose sight of it because you're human and because your emotions get triggered. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and relationship is relationship, whether it's high conflict or not. Yeah. We always have conflict in relationship. And I think one of the biggest things that I really try to put forward to the people in my classes is to, again, get this neurological um, somatic sense of what's taking place internally in that and learn how to put a governor on it. So to understand that there's an impulse to engage. And a good friend of mine um well, we were talking about this over the years, gave me a, a fourth rule that I um, implemented into that, which is a precursor to all of that, which is don't just do something, sit there. And that's that notion of, I feel the impulse, 
I'm not going to do anything and I'm going to let this move through my body before I even think about engaging or disengaging. It's just this setting point of this nervous system is going to regulate itself. And if I move on the impulse, there's a high degree of probability I'm going to make a bad mistake because I'm not in my cognitive brain. I'm in the amygdala and it's been hijacked and I'm just sitting here going, I want to protect myself. It's a protective mechanism. It's the, that fight, flight, freeze piece. And if we look at that, and this is one of the things that I really press for the people in my classes is that if you look around, even when you're in the middle of that conflict with somebody there's really not anything that is dangerous there it's noise and to notice that it's noise and i can sit there and if this is just my partner my mate and i've got a good relationship with them and they come at me and they do something if i just let that flow through if i kind of get into that aikido kind of a movement then there's not anything to pull back and to start the cycle. And when the cycle doesn't start, the conflict has a tendency to die. And that's mm. one of the places where I really, really focus is, again, there's this neurophysiological component to it. And we don't think about that very much. It's, we react to it, but we don't go this conflict's inside of me. It's not outside of me. I'm creating it. And if I can settle the system here, I can do a lot to avoid it. It sounds so logical and so easy, right? So I'm thinking about, you know, what I hear in that is that, you know, it's sitting with the discomfort, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, delaying immediate gratification and your impulse control to respond right. back. Um, mm -hmm. But say more, can you get into that physiological response to trauma yeah, well, it it is, you know, as you know, Amy. I mean, this is a um, this is a survival response, and this is a survival response oftentimes is coming out of our history of trauma, and we start to see trauma through that lens. So when it reshows itself, that reaction is to go back into that same behavior. So. What I've what I've really promoted for my clients is this notion, and you alluded to it a moment ago, of getting comfortable with being uncomfortable. It feels like that's the key to life. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. And yeah. when we can when we can somehow master that, everything begins to change, and. We go through our life so much in this notion of being disconnected from our body. We're so disembodied so much of the time. And when we can feel what's here and we can learn to tolerate the sensation of the discomfort at whatever level it is, then we've got agency to do this thing differently. And what what most people don't understand or haven't had the experience of or haven't been taught is that that nervous system activation is transient. It's not going to stay there forever. It's going to subside. 
And the system is going to self-regulate and down-regulate. And then once that happens, then we can come back into cognition. We can come back into choice. We can come back into making better decisions about what to do or not to do. But it's critical. I mean, uh, to me, that's the mechanism. And without that, we're going to stay lost. So I just want to pull back around and just touch on that on, on that borderline conversation for a minute that we had. Because it's important to understand that with that in particular, with that particular um, diagnosis. The borderline um, personality disorder? The bo- yeah. The borderline, yeah. There, there's a place where the system never settles where the system actually settling is a trigger and it keeps mm. popping in. And mm-hmm. Dr. Porges did some research on this. And when I read that, it was just fascinating to me because it really talks about the level of um, dysregulation that they're in constantly. And to understand that and to go, whoa, I don't need to go near that. It's a really important piece because their activation leads to yours. Mm, mm. Yeah, that's a very complicated diagnosis that we tend to kind of minimize and just think about a person who can't distinguish from multiple aspects of something, whether it's, you know, there's good parts of things, there's bad parts of things, but there's this general split of all good or all bad. But this idea right. that they um, they function in disequilibrium uh, and that that's their comfort zone is a really interesting way of thinking about it and how anybody can be triggered by that it's it's actually their discomfort zone but it's where they live Mm. it's it's really mm. because 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 they're never in a place of regulation i mean that that system is always popping back up right right but i I guess yeah i'm I'm just sifting through that idea of comfort Uh and the familiarity of it yeah. But of course, it's uncomfortable. <laughs> yes, yeah. yes. Um, so what can you say about navigating um, divorce and custody issues that you address in your book, The Black Hole of High Conflict? So kind of going towards the uh, idea of the effect on the children. So first of all, we want to understand, again, you know, these different components. And the legal system does a very poor job of that. Therapists, by and large, don't understand this either, um, unless you're in it and this is your focus and um, you're working clinically with it together. The legal system and the therapeutic pieces need to have a, a melding that come together and an understanding of both in order to navigate it. And I do that in the book. I do that in my classes. And I do that in my coaching trainings. But um, again, having some handle on what to expect. So when I'm doing my coaching work with people, um, the amazing piece to me is, is most of them, most people that come to me, number one, don't know what they want. Number two, doesn't know what the system is going to supply to them for parameters. And three, don't understand how to, get the right team together to move through this in a way that makes sense. So getting the right attorney, um, having a good therapist, having a good coach, understanding the money aspects are all part and parcel to this. So that's my job 
is to bring all of those components together. So when my clients go out to an attorney, the attorney isn't driving the conversation, they're driving the conversation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And because they're driving the conversation, they are staying out of the pitfalls of the conflict that attorneys often just bring in. And it's not because they are trying to, it's just because the nature of the law is adversarial. And we don't have to make it adversarial, even if it is, we can go a long way to um, disengage from that. So understanding what my pain thresholds are, what's really important here, what my beliefs are and where my beliefs are distorted, begin to help everybody that I work with kind of come into some coherence in the process. And the high conflict aversion program Mm -hmm. does a bit of that. Mm -hmm. Um, It's it's got the quality of really extending it over a a nine week period of time. It is financially more reasonable than working with me on an hourly basis to get to those points. And then, you know, they can come back afterwards and say, okay, I want to do more work. And this is where I want to, to really focus. Do you think that it's helpful um, to inform parents or make them knowledgeable about how this kind of um, communication and behavior between the parents impacts the child? Um, I think, I, I'm sure yeah. that there are some parents who are very anxious about the um, impact it's having on their children. And then there's mm-hmm. parents who are a little bit more oblivious or whose own needs just out outweigh that. Yeah. So um, parents that have got some level of consciousness that are are in this are going, my children are in distress. And they don't know how to stop it because there's something going on with the other parent that they can't control and they can never control. And there's um, a real separation in what the child might be experiencing in their home that they can control. And, and getting somebody to understand that they don't have control is really a hard concept for them because they feel that they've got to get somebody else to change in order to make it okay for the kids. And that's the whole principle with the parallel parenting model is, is that you can't, but you can take the child out of the middle by doing your job over here and really being focused in the ways that you need to be focused. And the parallel parenting um, model to me is a do no harm model. And it says this to me, Um, if you could co-parent, we wouldn't be having a conversation. So let's take that idea, let's throw it out the window and let's lose all of the arguments that go along with it because that's all there is in that type of a co-parenting model where people are in conflict all the time co-parenting doesn't exist so we drop down into the parallel parenting model which isn't ideal but it's good enough and this notion of good enough i think is really important and that i am not going to cause harm i'm going to not have this child in the middle when they're in my care And I'm going to give them a set of standards that they can navigate when they're not in my care. And then I work with transitions. I understand their needs. I have containers in which I hold them in, in my parenting style, 
which allows them to settle because these children need a settling place. They need to understand that their nervous system can settle, that it is that their needs are being met and that somebody's got their back. And if they've got that in just one place, it's good enough. And that's what the parallel parenting model and the structure of my program really brings in. That's so interesting. I guess I'm thinking about the, uh, obviously, as I asked, the impact on the children. And if you have any thoughts, if if you've done any work with adult children of high-conflict divorce parents. Well, I've done my own personal work around this one because I certainly had this growing up as well. And, you know, you look back and you go, how the hell did I get here? Well, that's how I got here. Well, so tell me that because I was coming to that. (laughs) How did you get interested? How did you get into this work? Well, you know, if we're I think if we're paying attention, life leads us to where we're supposed to be. And uh, I've always had a, a teacher mentor kind of a a personality, no matter what I've been doing. And um, when I went through my own high conflict divorce uh, coming out of my first marriage, I was like everybody that I work with. It's like, what the hell is this? And what is going on? I had some level of education and interpersonal um, relationship psychology, and I was doing studies in a lot of different areas, but it was this. And um it ignited me. I started working with somebody who was deep into this. I did some intern work and it's like, okay, this is fine, but it's missing so much. And then I came back and I started filling in the gaps and with, with really parenting. And I think parenting is the, is the basis of this, but you know, as I continued working in this, I forgot about my own childhood and in my own childhood, it was all of this and more Mm. and um so you know as you know as we're in these areas if we're not doing our own personal work if we're not getting our own supervision in this our biases our blind spots and all that comes through so i've been in that process ever since and um it's really enlightening because it, it it keeps bringing out these little morsels of um where i've got distortion in my thought and it helps me clean up my program it helps me clean up my coaching and it helps me be a better teacher for other coaches so you kind of had the double whammy you experienced it as a child and you experienced it as an adult in your own Mm -hmm. marriage um and so i'm assuming i know you're talking about understanding your biases and working through your stuff all very very important to our work um what would you say is something that you've really continued to be challenged by in regard to uh, where your empathy lies, where your bias lies, where your own personal experience kind of influences the lens through which you see things? So, I think for me, I've developed. Um, uh, an acuity, if you will, I'm always listening to what's coming out of my mouth. Um, I feel like a lot of what's coming out is meant for me as much as it is for anybody else that's out there. And um, I'll take that out of my sessions. I'll start to pull those pieces apart and, and go, yeah, that's 
something that you need to do a little bit of correction on. There's a little distortion in that stuff. You're bringing your own material in and to be able to do that. So that's one of the practices that I have on and on, on a daily basis. Um, when I'm done with a session with somebody, I kind of sit back and I go and I'll, I'll run back through, even in real time, sometimes I'll start to catch this stuff and start to do a correction. So, you know, that's just something that's really important to me. And then I have a practice of holding space when I'm doing my sessions as well. So there's a, a place where I'm paying attention to me. And then there's a place where I'm paying attention to the client. And then there's a place where I'm paying attention to the unified field that brings all this information in that is unspoken. So there's this three levels of um, attention that I try to use in it. And I think that that helps in that process of staying out of the distortion of the blind spots as well. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, that's a continual practice in this line of work. Do you, I mean, I don't know if this is something you want to talk about and you'll tell me, but do you find that there's any kind of behavior that really triggers you that you're aware of in this kind of work? Because I, for myself, I can imagine a host of things. So cool. I'm. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I'll talk to that a little bit. Um, There's there, there, there's triggers in places for me that I really have to sit down in my own discomfort when I have um, parents that are really lacking empathy for their kids and in their own um, narcissistic distortions, if you will, and beliefs, um, you know, places where there's a high level of victim mentality in them. Mm. And that has a tendency to trigger me and I have to just really sit down in my chair and get my system in line and come to where they're coming from and understanding how they got in those places. So again, that's, that's my history of um, having parents that had a, a lack of attunement and, or a lack of presence. And I think that that's the focus for me is I want my clients and the parents that I work with to really lean into that discomfort in their own systems about this isn't happening to you. This is a wake up call for you so you can do a better job for your for your kids. Did that answer the question? Yeah, it sure did. Um yeah, you know, it's funny because I, I was thinking in my follow-up as you're talking about, like, where do you think that comes from your experience as the child or your experiences as the spouse? And you labeled it as, as a child, but I'm sure that that experience as a child impacted your own high conflict. It, it, it absolutely did. And I think that that's a good point to bring forward because what this process for me has been and continues to be is a wake-up call to where I blew it, where I didn't do a good job, where I missed my callings as a parent, where I missed my callings as a partner. And that also informs me of working with my clients as well. I mean, it's not about coming into collusion with them. It's coming into understanding with them and, and being able to be, yeah, I know where you're at been there, done that, got the t-shirt, let me hold your hand and show you what that looks like. Because having experienced that and been able to look back into those areas, 
I think really informs us as as um, coaches and therapists to to be in um, that empathetic state with them. That's one of the reasons I love this work, right? Is because we mm. get to continuously grow, not just professionally but personally. I mean, it's it's the luxury of luxuries uh, mm-hmm. to help people and help ourselves along the way. Yeah, um, if you like being uncomfortable. Yeah. <laughs> you have to like being uncomfortable or you have to get comfortable being uncomfortable. Right. Yes. So what takeaway would you want parents to have from all the work that you do and all that you've seen, people who are listening, who are parents, and then oh, I'm going to come back to God. what takeaway for social workers are those who work with parents and or kids involved in high conflict divorce? So for parents, I think the takeaway here is understand that your parenting style comes not from you. It's a belief that it was given to you probably from your parents or from a lack of having good input. And um, we need to do a better job. We need to understand what connection means. We need to understand what attachment means and, and not to go deep into rabbit holes, but to be able to be present for your kids and, and know that, you know, my good friend, Susie Walton, who is one of my mentors in in the parenting world, um, has a program and it's called The Joy of Parenting. And I love that because when you move from this oftentimes parental narcissistic piece of that's too much or I need to get my needs met over here and all of this stuff, when there's a really true engagement with the kids there's a fulfillment that happens that doesn't happen anywhere else. And when you can experience that, it becomes something that you strive for and you see the development in your kids and you see things change. And I've seen this in my world. I've seen this in the world of my parents that I work with. As this starts to grow, they their connection really becomes tight and cohesive and um, joyful. So this is the piece that when you break the patterns of the conflict, when you really take the direction into that parenting piece and you understand that this other stuff is just problem solving, um, this is what I think the biggest takeaway is. Mm, Yeah. So that joy is really being missed when people are involved in high conflict and that can be a, a chunk of your child's childhood. Yeah, and I think it's I think it's a piece that's not just missed when people are in high conflict. I think it's just a piece of parenting that's missed when people are going through unconsciously and going. I mean, I remember I I remember this piece of my own parenting. It's like, yeah, we do this and we do this and we do this and we do this, but the connection in it wasn't really in there. And when we can really bring the kids into the conversation, we can bring the kids into the connection. There's something really magical that happens. And um, so for anybody listening, whether they're in a high conflict um, divorce or custody piece or a high conflict marriage, or just being normal people going through the world, this to me is a, there's a wake up call here. And the wake up call is, is kids are just really amazing amazing reflections of us and we can learn so much from them if we engage with them yeah um i think that there's so much that anybody as you said can learn whether you're a parent or not from this conversation because 
everybody experiences conflict. Everybody experiences difficulty at some point modulating their own emotions and not only think about how that affects other people and the relationships one has, but obviously yourself internally, right? So let me just ask you one last takeaway for social workers or other people or mental health professionals who work with parents and are involved in high conflict divorce or high conflict stuff. Mm -hmm. What do you want to leave them with? And so I think we got here, all of us doing this work, not by mistake. And a lot of our history comes forward here. And if we don't pay attention, we have a tendency to collude with our clients to um, get caught in our own blind spots and to push in directions that if we don't really understand what we're doing, we're going to create bigger problems for ourselves and for our clients going forward. And for social workers, you know, I've done a lot of um, presentations to social workers in this arena and it amazes me about how little understanding there is out there in this arena. And to, if you're going to be working with people in this area, to really step into your own work with it, understand why it is that you're doing this, how the hell you got here, what your history brings to you, and to work those pieces constantly. Because if you don't, you're going to be blindly navigating your own histories and doing damage for your clients and for yourselves. And this is not an arena that has anything like to it. This is this this requires constantly monitoring what's going on and understanding the other aspects of it. Because again, one of the things that I think is important is for therapists to understand that attorneys don't understand the therapeutic piece of this. They don't understand the psychology that's in this. And because they don't, they're just working off of a lot of them, their own crazy making stuff as well, especially in the the arena of family law. Two, that therapists don't understand the legal components that are in this. And because they don't talk and they don't understand as a therapist or a social worker, you've got to be really careful about the direction you give to your client in terms of empowering them. And when you empower a person that is in an abusive relationship in this, they can show up as being the problem. And it's all a place of perception. So to really you know, as therapists and, and and coaches in this to to bring the conversation into alignment with the venue that they're in becomes crucial. Yeah. I mean, I always talk about how we repeat what we know. And mm-hmm. yet it's also interesting that we tend to work with populations that we have experienced similar experiences. And you better work your stuff out. As I think that's the message that you're saying. You better understand why you went into this, where where your stuff is still being activated and reactive, and uh, 
spend some time on that so that you can do really, really good work because it also arms you, right, with certain knowledge and experience, but but it's not your experience is not enough. So yeah. um and I just want to add one yes. piece to that is yeah. in, in this particular field, there are so many ancillary components to it, so many ancillary professionals that are in it. Um, and you have to have some level of competency and understanding of what those components are in order to be able to lead your clients through it. Um, yes. I, so this is just reactivating a memory of mine when I think I had mentioned to you previously when we spoke that I um, led divorce support groups for years. And when I started, I had no idea about the judicial system and the reality of it. <clears throat> and even though a support group's purpose is that the members who are in different phases of this can support each other, uh, I think it was very important for me to have that knowledge um, because without understanding all the obstacles, all the limitations, all the bureaucracy of it, uh, it's very hard to uh, offer feedback that's um, relevant and helpful. So I agree wholeheartedly. Um, I'm going to ask you to just share your podcast information or whatever information you would like the audience to know about. So my podcast is the High Conflict Co-Parenting Podcast, and it can be found on just about any podcast um, streaming that you've got out there. Apple, um, Lipson, all of those are available. Um, my parenting classes are the High Conflict um, Diversion Program. They can be found on my website, highconflict.net. Um, also, uh, you can reach me through um, that uh, to reach out for coaching sessions. Also, I have a um, coaching training that I do. It's a three-day intensive. It's process-based. So we get into all of these little nooks and crannies of our personal stuff and our own biases and our own blind spots. So it's it's quite um, it's quite in-depth. And I do those once or twice a year. And the information for those are always on um, my website as well. Awesome. And I had the pleasure of guesting uh, on your podcast twice, talking about the impact of high conflict parenting and divorce on the children. As you can see, I was prodding for that a little bit in this conversation. And you can hear more uh, if you want to check out Brooke's podcast. So Brooke, thank you so much for your time. This was really um, enlightening. Uh, got me thinking as as usual about um, the parallels of the work that we do, the differences and uh, you know what? What high conflicting, high conflict divorce is really all about. Um, so thanks. Thank you for having me, Amy. And, and again, the work that you're doing. I, you know, when I discovered um, after you reached out to to see about doing a podcast with me, I, I delved into your stuff, and it's like this is just such good work that you're doing. Oh, so thank, thank you. For that. Thank you. All right. Be well. Thanks for listening. I really appreciate it. If you liked what you heard, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you have a question for me, follow me on Instagram and Facebook at Dr. Myers Pod. That's D-R-M-E-Y-E-R-S-P-O-D. And send me a DM for a chance to get your question answered on the podcast. I've got some problems, yeah, I've got some questions. I need some help, point me in any direction. 
Clinical guidance is what I need to help me become who I'm meant to be. I've been searching for a teacher, another point of view. And I've been asking myself, what would Dr. Myers do?